0: Hey everybody. My name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. We're going to talk about commodities. So commodities are basically in an uproar right now because of the war that's happening between Russia and Ukraine and really the rest of the world. The United States sanctioned energy imports from Russia. The UK was quick to follow sanctioning oil, but not gas, but the EU is still importing a massive amount of energy from Russia. Today we're going to talk about what's going on in commodities, why it's happening and what could happen next. This is brought to you by Calshi. The commodities and derivatives market has had a long history, commoditizing everything from grain to credit risk. Calshi believes that event contracts are the next step in this evolution. After decades of trials from large Wall Street firms, Calshi is the first financial exchange to get federal approval to allow people to trade on event contracts, a long-weighted instrument that commoditizes events. You can now buy yes or no shares on events like whether the Fed will hike interest rates next week or if oil will hit $150 this month. Check out calshicom oil. This is not investment advice. So, everything is pretty spicy. Inflation came out this week. The CPI came in at 7.9%, which is broadly in line with what economists expected, so that's good. It's high, but expectedly high, which sort of negates some of the highness, kind of. So, inflation definitely seems like it's going to be sticking around for a while. Everyone likes to say, huh, oh, you know, guess this wasn't transitory, but I don't really think that the Federal Reserve had a war baked into their forecast. The concerning part is that the war is not reflected in the February print, despite the White House saying so the march print which will come in april could be a doozy especially considering all that's unfolded over the past week as gregory daco pointed out assuming oil prices average 120 dollars a barrel through the rest of the month we would expect gasoline prices to rise about 19 to 20 percent in march this alone would add 0.7 percent to headline cpi inflation for context and sizing the feds average inflation target is about two percent so things are going to be expensive small businesses are hiking prices to try and mitigate rising input costs. But wages are pretty much stagnant. So, getting into agriculture, there are basically two common denominators to most people on earth. They need food and they mostly need energy, whether that be electricity, heating, etc. These things are very intertwined throughout the broad global ecosystem because agriculture is an input to most processes and energy is a facilitator to most processes. Food is pretty expensive, wheat is still near all time highs, Russia and Ukraine are two of the world's top five wheat exporters, so it's a massive amount of pressure for production levels. Not to mention grain, barley, corn, soybeans, and burlap, etc crop calendar is coming under even more pressure with a potential loss of planting season in Ukraine and Russia as well. And this is a domino tipping. So grain is the number one cost to feeding cattle, for example. So when grain prices increase, the cost of cattle is going to have to increase too. Everything is a giant interconnected web. When the gravity of higher prices rips the thread, the whole thing becomes that much more delicate. And this gets into political stability. Food is largely a function of political stability. Arab spring partially happened because of shortages and food and energy are common denominators to everything. And if all of a sudden people can't access them, they're going to be very unhappy and rightly so. And this gets into food protectionism. We're starting to see countries like Hungary block grain exports, Egypt blocked all exports, and Ukraine will be limiting exports all to secure a stockpile of goods in the face of this immense uncertainty. And food prices are very high here in the United States. Then this gets into fertilizer. So a common denominator to food is fertilizer. As Bloomberg wrote, natural gas is the feedstock of nitrogen. fertilizers. usually a accounting for 80% of a manufacturer's cost. And of course, Russia produces a large amount of ammonium nitrate, roughly two thirds of all production, which is a key input into fertilizers that improve yields for crops such as corn, cotton, and wheat. According to SB global, this makes the cost of running a farm go up or seek out alternative crops, like soybeans, etc. European facilities are only at 45% capacity right now because of these constraints and Russia just suspended fertilizer exports entirely, which is kind of like reverse sanctioning on the U S. So. Uh, you know, you stop importing our oil, have fun growing crops. And global food prices are already at all time highs, and they will definitely go higher if a key input is sucked out of the process. And this gets into natural gas. So, European natural gas futures have been all over the place for a week, and at one point, we're essentially equivalent to $600 for a barrel of oil, which trades between 100 and like 130 right now. But think about crude oil going to 600, and that's sort of where natural gas has been. Russia is a huge supplier of EU gas, once again, revealing some of the flaws of the whole okay we can just use green energy now plan. And the US is actually exporting a lot of LNG to Europe. But unfortunately, the game of resource allocation is pretty much zero sum because Europe and Asia are likely to end up in a pay battle for gas. It's already sort of happening. Pakistan did not get their deliveries, forcing them to purchase from the spot market, which is quite expensive. And Europe's energy demands are going to suck away LNG from the emerging world and put even more price pressure on their economies. Energy is super important. And when countries are bidding for a smaller pool of it, now that Russia's contribution is diminished, prices will go up. And the EU wants to boost imports by 37 million tons. And there is just literally not enough supply for that. So prices will go up even more. So once again, we find ourselves back at the intersection of supply and demand. Getting into oil, uh, to give you an idea of how this is looking, despite all the efforts of renewables, oil, natural gas, and coal are about 75% of the world's energy consumption. And to caveat that, yes, like uh, renewables are the future. One day, I 100% believe they're the future, but they're not the solution right now. They just can't be, we have to invest for the long run, but the short run is going to be a lot of mitigation options, lifting sanctions. So the U S is trying to get Venezuela and Iran to ship some of their oil. If the U S lifts sanctions off both countries and then OPEC stepping up. So the UAE agreed to press OPEC to produce more and the Rock acknowledged and was like, yeah, we can probably produce more too, but the key will be getting Saudi Arabia on board with that. So OPEC plus is producing a little bit more, but they're still not even at their output targets. So who knows how much more they'll be able to produce. Especially now that Russia is an uncertain member of that club, but even then it's uncertain because Iran and Venezuela probably won't match how much Russia was able to produce. And of course, all of this requires global coordination, which is easier said than done. So for Iran, the Iran nuclear talks were suspended. Those sanctions on Iran might not be lifted anytime soon. Nobody really knows. I mean, nobody really quote unquote knows why it was suspended. It was due to external factors, quote unquote. But Russia is involved in these talks uh, and seemingly made it all about them saying that Russian sanctions should be lifted too, because the Iranian sanctions are being lifted. And that made the stops talk entirely. As one person said, Putin sent the nuclear accord into a coma good and then getting into saudi arabia so they're not happy with the united states they've been a buddy of the united states but not recently biden kind of took a hard stance with them and for good reason um saudi arabia refused to take a phone call from biden instead spoke to putin the two countries have had a pretty strained relationship from the horrific murder of journalist jamal which was reportedly approved by saudi crown prince mbs according to u.s intelligence that gets into a lot of unfortunate political web weaving and people pointing fingers biden and mbs do not really get along, Biden only speaks to MBS's dad, and MBS and Donald Trump are pretty tight, so it's just a messy relationship, and Biden hurt MBS's feelings. So when you get your feelings hurt, you do want to isolate that person. But now the US needs their oil, and Boris Johnson might step in so we can deliver, quote, more flows of oil and gas from Saudi Arabia to shut down Putin's war machine sooner, which just feels like an ironic statement to make. As Albert Marin wrote in Black Gold, oil has often mixed with politics, religion, and blood. If we're right, Right now, the market is just like, "Mm, where is all this oil going to come from? And because of that uncertainty, it's very volatile and very expensive from a consumer perspective. People don't spend that much on gasoline as a percentage of total budget, but oil goes into everything. So it's not like, oh yeah, this, you know, SPR release will just solve all our problems. We have unfortunately found ourselves in a very toxic relationship with oil and the breakup is going very badly and it hurts lower income consumers more than most. The world is more efficient than it used to be, which is a good thing. So it can produce two times as many goods now than it could in in 1973 for every barrel of oil, but it's still not a great spot to be in. And the outgoing general secretary of OPEC was like, don't worry, there's still plenty of oil to go around, Uh, but is there for Russia in particular, Europe and China are by 85% of their crude and Europe, Europe and the US take about 75% of their refined product export. Russia is a really big part of this overall puzzle. And so there could be plenty of oil to go around, but access to that oil is a whole different story. Nobody wants to touch Russian oil for fear of violating the sanctions, so even though Europe can still access Russian oil, they kind of can't. Even with that, Russia is just bathing in oil money right now because even though they are selling their oil at a discount, the rise in prices has made the net effect trivial. However, the EU did say that they would wean themselves off Russian gas by the end of this year, but with Putin pulling the plug, who knows what the rest of the year will even look like. With that being said, it is highly unlikely that Russia would make it until December 31st with their current trajectory. They are losing a massive amounts of soldiers and seem to have largely underestimated the West at every turn. Negotiations seem to be better, but they still have a long path until agreement. And so then the big question is, well, why doesn't the US just produce more oil? Uh, So this was my research question for the week because everybody was like Keystone blocky bad. And I was like, you know, that's fair, but what it's actually a little bit more interesting than that, at least from a shale perspective. The shale industry lit their investors' money on fire. A few times over the past several years, and now, investors are not happy with shale. They say, Shale, please focus on giving us money. Thanks. No more expansion. No more rapid growth. Just free cash flow and dividend yields. And that's all. So, the shale people are like, Okay, sugar daddy. I mean, shale daddy. And they <laughs> retain focus on getting investors some returns. It's a bit bizarre, honestly, because fracking companies haven't drilled as prices have risen because of their investors. They've also pointed out shortages of labor, sand, and equipment. So, it's not just investors. And have acknowledged that the shale industry just can't go from zero to 60. They have to have 18 months to Ramp it up. Biden is not happy about that, telling them to do whatever it takes. But shale is like, no, we we can't just drill. We have to explore and produce first. So yeah, this is just an example from Pioneer Natural Resources, but it shows you how much they care about giving cash back to investors versus producing. Which like I, you know, I personally get. But I know investors want to make money. I personally am an investor. I understand. But I feel like when there's a global energy crisis, priorities might shift a little bit. But maybe that's just me being silly. Uh, yeah, I know. and then nuclear what what if we could have that that would be freaking wild dude and electric vehicles so everyone's like what what if everyone just drove an ev that will show big oil like and it would but also the raw materials and metals needed to produce evs and their batteries are all increasing too because of course they are and there's just not enough manufacturing capacity and the white house tweeted out like um if we all just drove evs putin's never gonna mess with us again and that's just not true so you know let's just talk about nickel so this week was wild in the nickel market uh which I never thought it would be a statement that I would say out loud. But there is a 250% increase in prices. Russia produces about 16% of all nickel, which is definitely its five cents. But what happened was a short squeeze. So something that was absurd when it happened to GME and AMC, but now it's just like, oh yeah, this anomaly is happening in the market. Uh, Yeah, of course it is. A lot of traders are short nickel to hedge against their physical positions, and one Chinese tycoon was ridiculously short. And this guy has been low key manipulating the market for a while, but the price of nickel rose on Russia uncertainty and then it rose more. More as people covered their shorts, and then more and more collateral to, ha- to pay margin calls, the price of nickel just exploded upwards. This guy has this Chinese tycoon has billions of dollars in losses, but the London Metal Exchange was like, "All right, you know things are getting reckless out here," and they shut down trading. And that represented about nine thousand trades worth about four billion dollars, according to F in London. So all the people who were short that had losses, etc., and all the people that were trading gains on it had their trades canceled, which is like highly questionable, right? As Wall Street Journal wrote this is a trend that is undermining free markets and creating all the wrong incentives a growing reluctance by the authorities to let financial groups go bust even when they are too big to fail the danger to free markets is that governments regulators and in the case of nickel the exchange itself are setting the bar for bailouts lower in every crisis and this Chinese tycoon is going back for more because why wouldn't he of course I mean I would too if you can if you can lose eight billion dollars and get saved by the exchange you're essentially trading risk-free which is the freaking dream dude but both China and the LME are asking uh his company to cover some of the losses the funny thing about all of this is this company that he has uh, that the chinese tycoon has produces nickel pig iron which is like the low budget version of nickel and when they started producing this the nickel market freaked out then too so it's just kind of wild that this guy has been able to amass such a large position and has been doing this for years as mark thompson said allowing a market counterparty to build a 190,000 short position in the most volatile and one of the most least liquid metals without anticipating the risk of the market or was a terrible, terrible act of irresponsibility. And it is because how are you going to let somebody come in and do something that big, especially when the war rolled out, anybody short would have gotten squeezed just given the volatility and uncertainty. And it kind of circles back into the weaponization of the dollar question. What does it mean when an exchange, who is literally just supposed to be a facilitator of trades actually steps in and cancels those trades. If you just delete the dollars from Russia's reserves, what does that mean for the credibility of the dollar? And if you just delete trades. What does that mean for the credibility of LME? The market is still not open. So that's nickel little squeeze on LME commodities. You know, this of course happened back in 1985 with the 10 crisis and then oil went negative. And we can't forget about the silver Thursday when the hunt brothers tried to corner the silver market. History doesn't rhyme, but it does repeat and nickel doesn't exist in its own piggy bank. This could bleed out to the rest of the commodity markets, hedging, margin calls, liquidations, etc. So let's talk about China. I've written about this before, but it's happening again. because of course it is Chinese tech stocks are spiraling about 2 trillion in losses. The golden dragon, China index, which tracks us traded stocks is down almost 70%, which is near what it hit in 2008 to give an idea of how big the move is. It's mostly like ah, fueled sell off a combination of China, having a very confusing and ever changing stance on Russia. Chinese companies not complying with auditing rules, including um, China, which might result in delisting. And of course, Beijing cracking down on everything randomly once again, what's interesting relative to this is people thinking that the renminbi might take over as a result reserve currency, which is interesting, especially in the backdrop of all the volatility in the Chinese markets. The remember overtook the yen and swift, which could be because everyone's like, let's get away from the dollar and could be looking to use SIPs, China's alternative to swift as China banking news points out as Benjamin Cohen said, every time the US and its allies make access to the dollar weapon, it creates an additional incentive for the Chinese to take advantage at some point. It's not a case of the Chinese wolf at the door of us dollar dominance. It's more a case of termites in the woodwork. China seems to mostly care about China they refuse to supply Russian airlines with aircraft parts, which I'm sure Putin absolutely loved, but they're also looking to buy some stakes in Russian energy companies and assets. So they're just kind of doing whatever they want. But broadly, it's just unlikely that China would take over as reserve currency. As George Magnus points out, you have to have transparency, allowance, and system access, which China is historically not known for having. However, um, Zoltan, eh, that's this, this, this is an anti-Zoltan view. Zoltan is brilliant. He has been like wild recently, but he's brilliant. And he wrote, if we are right, and this is a crisis of commodities a 2008 of sorts thematically if not in terms of size or severity who will provide the backstop we see but only one entity the people's bank of china when this crisis and war is over the us dollar should be much weaker and on the flip side the renminbi much stronger backed by a basket of commodities and bitcoin if it still exists then will probably benefit from all this he is calling for china to sort of take over which like is isn't a wild take Mix. So it gets into the point of commodity versus reserves, which I kind of talked about last week. The main point is that international banks are going to rotate away from reserves in USD because of dollar weaponization, which is a similar point that Matt Klein made in his piece. As Matt wrote, safe financial assets now look less appealing to any government that thinks it could ever get cut off from the allies currently mobilizing against Russia. Savings are domestic industrial capacity, not financial assets. So you're going to see people switch to production versus just having reserves. And a commodity driven world might not be. A USD driven world, like it doesn't really need to be. But China as commodity king, I'm not sure. China also imports a lot of commodities, hence their concern around food inflation. So the point about them swooping in to provide a backstop to Russian commodities because Western banks due to sanctions, as Dalton wrote, is sort of interesting. Basically, the PVOC would clear new money commodities, which like maybe, but will Russian commodities even be around? I'm not sure. And that gets into military money. Uh that's sort of most of the value of the USD. China is building out their military, but the US is probably. Not number one player in this game. Dollar weaponization comes with actual weapons. Who knows, but Matt Klein is right. I do think we're going to see people be like, okay, us dollar, you're kind of wacky. I'm going to start doing things my way. And that gets into protectionism too. So Bitcoin fixes this sultan, if it still exists, quote unquote, seems unlikely because the us finally got closer to passing meaningful regulation around crypto with Biden's executive order. It highlights the power of digital assets and the need for the us to get it together with CBDCs and underscores that the industry should not be destroyed, but incorporated into. To existing economic frameworks better, which is really good. And it brings crypto into the conversation in a way that it needs to be brought in. Seems like every day a new freaking Web3 fund is popping up. So it's like we should probably have some guardrails around this industry that is um, taking so much money. And remember, I'm a big crypto fan, but I call it how I see it with this, like, with you know, flows. Finally, crypto has been a really powerful donation tool during the war. And it kind of deserves to have fair regulation that reflects that, right? Like it's been a really important part, $15 million worth of weapons for Ukraine. As of last week, it is a huge deal, but crypto as an industry trades like tech because of the sheer amount of institutional dollars that have flowed recently. And as people move into inflation protected funds and on growth funds, that could put a little bit of price pressure on the space. Some final thoughts, war is still raging. Ukrainian people are still fighting for their people and their country. Putin is increasingly acting like a cat backed into a corner. And the recent development of taking on soldiers from the Middle East is concerning. India accidentally fired a missile into Pakistan and Pakistan was like, this will definitely lead to unpleasant consequences for you. So things are just tense to use a very far from descriptive and all encompassing word. Goldman is saying that there's a 35% chance of recession, which makes sense considering the strain on resources the broader uncertainty. It will be difficult to avoid some sort of slowdown and Russia might default, which could be a whole cascading wave of financial impacts. BlackRock has already lost 17 billion db is stuck there apparently and it will just reveal any sort of contagion shock that exists in this dominoes of sanctions credit markets are already showing signs of strain so a lot might be yet to unfold and as a final point humans are always innovative so yeah that's what's been going on with commodities kind of a wild time to be a person uh, who's uses those things, but I will be back next week. Thanks so much for hanging out. And this is of course newsletter uh, version. If you'd like to read instead, I'm on YouTube. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm everywhere. Yeah. Let me know if you have thoughts, questions, comments below, and I will see you all soon.